Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Views on View podcast. This week on our panel, we have Ben Hong from GitLab. Hello. We have Natalia from the ViewCore team. Hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And this week, we have a special guest, and that's Alex Vipond. Hello. Thanks for having me. Hey, folks, I just want to let you know quickly about Netlify. Netlify is a really cool system for hosting what are traditionally known as static sites. However, the real benefit that I've been finding is that I don't have to mess with a back end. I can just set things up. I build the website out. I've been using a system called 11DJS and you just deploy it. And then anything that you have that you want to do, you can do on the front end. So if you want to pull in some kind of database with Firebase or something else, if you want to collect form data, Netlify provides all kinds of services that make it easy to do all that stuff. If you're trying to do serverless, they have a really, really neat serverless setup that will allow you to deploy your websites without having to deploy a backend and it'll do some of the work for you. I just I just love it. So if you're looking for a way that you can actually deploy a website that only has front-end technology in it, gives you all the tools that you typically need for the back-end without having to actually program the back-end, then give them a try. Go check them out at netlify.com. Now, do you want to just uh, introduce yourself real quick and let everybody know who you are and why you're so smart? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I think it'll be an interesting intro because... I'm working on like a really dev-heavy project that is meant to serve developers. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. But the dirty little secret is that I'm not a developer myself. I'm a total weekend warrior, self-taught kind of person, which I think is what has drawn me to this arena of tools that are built for developers that come from, I guess, more of like a less logic-heavy, really traditional computer science background. But to tell you what I do do, I work at... Uh, a little company called Kumu, K-U-M-U, which is an awesome platform for building any kind of graph. Um, that's like for network mapping or system mapping. Anything with circles and lines, you'll be in good shape making that with Kumu. Um, and there's some really interesting like CSS-inspired decoration abilities that you have. So it's an easy interface for non-technical people to create graph diagrams and visualizations uh, and then for people who are technical, there are some additional features that you can tap into to really take it to the next level. So at Kumu, I mean, we're, all, we're a small shop, so we all do a lot of everything. Uh, but mainly I'm responsible for customer support and community engagement there. And then all of this renderless component stuff that we're going to talk about today is probably the biggest side project that I do in my spare time. Nice. So uh, I want to really briefly just go into the whole self-taught weekend warrior kind of thing. So you said you're not a developer. What is it that you actually do? Because I kind of caught that you work for a company out there that does interesting stuff, but yeah. Yeah, so I do, uh, for, I do customer support and community engagement at Kumu, and that you know ties in with a lot of marketing content, uh, video tutorials on how to use the software. I do a lot of technical documentation, written and rewritten the docs tons of times. And then what else do I do? And, and the people who, if they want to make a graph visualization and they don't you know, know how to use the tool or don't have the time, they'll come to us and we'll do more of a consulting type relationship. So that sometimes even pulls me into more of like graphic design and user experience design work in terms of taking people's data and making it into a nice visualization, making it readable, uh, interactive, that kind of thing. So yeah, we, we all wear a lot of hats at Kumu, which is my full-time job. And then just to talk a little bit about being self-taught, when did I start that? That had to be maybe like a year, two years ago, and just jumped around from a lot of different tools. I never really did a formal 
course or anything like that, but I kind of like jumped on Khan Academy, um, found this nice little tool called at edabit.com, E-D-A-U-B-I-T.com, I think it's spelled, um, which is just like JavaScript challenges to get you familiar with different array methods and stuff like that. And, and yeah, since then, I've just been playing around with my own web development projects, that's sites as well as apps, you know, given that this is all side project stuff. Um, I don't think I have anything huge that I've deployed that I would point to for people to go look at. But, you know, I think this renderless component project is going to be my first big splash, I'd say. Cool. Well, let's, let's dive in here and talk about renderless component libraries. Sounds good. Should I kick it off with just a discussion of what renderless components themselves are all about? Maybe what components are about? Yeah, give us a definition and then I'm sure uh, Natalia or Ben have really interesting questions to ask. Yeah. My um, questions are usually of the basic type, so. <laughs> yeah, so I think um, anyone who's spent even just a little bit of time in Vue has, is probably familiar with components in some sense and component libraries out there like Beautify or Beaufy or Quasar, Ionic, etc. There's a ton of them out there. But basically the idea is that we all write a lot of code that we want to use in a lot of different places. That's HTML, CSS, and JavaScript all combined. Uh, and components are a great way to wrap those things up in nice little kind of like HTML tags, it feels like, when you're writing them. Uh, and then you can bring in all kinds of different markup and functionality and stuff without having to think so deeply about the implementation details each time you want to bring it onto a site or an app. So that's components in general. A renderless component specifically is a component that um, I would say in essence, you're really just like shortcutting JavaScript. Um, there's no HTML and CSS involved. It's called renderless because it doesn't render anything in the end. In, in more technical terms, like under the hood with Vue, it will use a render function to bring in, you know, like a slot or a scope slot or something like that um, that is provided by the developer when they're using, when they're creating an instance of the component. Yeah, that's great. So, uh, like, in your words, what do you think would be, like, why wouldn't you say, like, a mix-in rather than, wh- why render this component over something like a mix-in where I could just, you know, bring in JavaScript that way? It's a good question. I think there are a lot of different problems that you can solve with both mix-ins and renderless components. What I like about renderless components is just that you feel like you're writing pure but super-powered HTML all the time. Um, So it just feels like a really low mental overhead. Obviously, there's tons to know about HTML, and there are people that have expertise in that domain with accessibility and all that. But in general, I think it's like less logic-heavy than JavaScript, so you're not always thinking 10 steps ahead of what you're trying to do, writing JavaScript, writing new functions, figuring out what methods you need, how to name them. And I think that is kind of more of the world of mix-ins. You can definitely get to the same end result um, with both tools. Uh, but yeah, I just like the workflow of feeling like I'm just writing HTML, but then all of a sudden it pops up on the screen and it's doing this amazing piece of functionality that I didn't really have to think about at all. I've read your article about renderless components libraries, and I want to ask, there is a statement there like, renderless components implement more advanced UI logic. Can you elaborate a bit? Because it's a really interesting mm-hmm. statement. Yeah, so I think the example I gave in the article was about um, the UI logic involved in like an autosave component. Like you think about the, you, know, you type something in on a form, on an input element on a page, and then you click a save button and you know that that's been saved to your profile or wherever. 
I don't love that example looking back. I think the example of an autocomplete is a better one. It's something that's really common, used on a lot of sites. But I think autocompletes are notoriously difficult to kind of build from scratch and try to implement and customize. And the logic itself, I think, is you can break it down into a couple different pieces. I mean, obviously, you need to render a text input to capture what the user is typing in. And then when you're typing into an autocomplete, the first piece of logic is that as soon as the text changes that the user is putting in, uh, you automatically search a list of options looking for that text um, and maybe return a list of results. And if there, is re- if there are results, the next piece of logic is that you will render a drop-down menu or something like that with all the matching options contained in it. And then maybe that also has some additional logic watching the keyboard and key press events so that people, when people press the up and down arrows, they navigate through the list of matching options, but they still have focus on the text input so they can continue typing if they want to keep expanding on what they're typing in. And then the, I think the final piece of logic is when you click on an option and you select it, that replaces the user's text with the text of the option that they clicked. So like even with just that simple example, which is used in all kinds of apps, I think autocompletes are like one of the things that are pretty much a prerequisite for any modern app. You're going to find an autocomplete somewhere within that app. But those logical pieces, breaking that down and setting that up and coding that out for somebody, let's say somebody who has a lot of expertise in design and they're a complete CSS wizard, they have their own design system, all their custom tooling, or maybe somebody who's a HTML wizard, they're an expert in semantics, they're super good at accessibility. Um, So they spent all their time learning that. And when it comes for time for them to implement those logical pieces with JavaScript, it's just not a domain that they've spent a lot of time in. And that completely excludes them from using or building that feature, building their own autocomplete component, which they're going to need at some point or another if they're building websites and apps. But they're excluded from doing that because they just haven't you know, spent time in a specific domain that we work in in the front end. So I think that's an interesting example of UI logic that renderless components can wrap up. So maybe you just type out, like you just type some sort of HTML that indicates that you're creating an instance of an autocomplete component, and then you can put any of your own markup, your own CSS inside of it um, without worrying that uh, you know, you're going to break the search. You're not going to know how to get the list results back. You're not going to be able to replace the text with the options. Um, so I think it just abstracts all that away and it kind of hides the implementation details from you. Yeah, I think it makes perfect sense. And you mentioned also you need a design system, obviously, because we're not exposing any kind of CSS or icons. And do you have any preferable design system for yourself? Oh, yeah, definitely. The one I'm working with right now, I've been, I discovered Tailwind CSS, which is, I think, blowing up right now. Um, I found that maybe about a year ago. And that is kind of, it's like an atomic CSS framework with lots of utility classes built in but it also kind of comes with its own default design system to get you started, uh, which is all fully customizable, but it's awesome. I love the look and feel of it. So yeah, the Tailwind design system is one that I've been playing around a lot with. And actually the, uh, for the renderless component library that I'm building, the documentation site is all Tailwind CSS, all of their design system. Yeah, I totally share your love for Tailwind CSS. And, and I think Ben is, yeah, I see Ben, do you agree with me? Yeah, that definitely has been catching on. Definitely a lot of love for Tailwind CSS. Yeah, I, I keep hearing about it as well in the wider JavaScript community. So, Yeah, Adam Wathan's done a pretty fantastic job with that. 
Yeah, should bring him on. That'd be a good episode. <laughs> we had him on one of the shows recently. I'll have to find show notes for that. But I think we were talking about something else. Yeah, he has a lot of different things out there. But yeah, so uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about, I think, Balida? Baliada. Yeah, Baliada. All right. Yeah, tell us about Baliada. Yeah, so Baliada is, it's just a component library, except instead of the traditional components you might think of where you're getting buttons and inputs and stuff, you're getting all kinds of basically markup and CSS shortcutted for you. So then you can, you know, work on the JavaScript side of things and get your app working. Baliada is going to be pretty much all renderless components at least at its most basic level. I think I might tier it into a couple different levels that you can install. But the most basic one is definitely going to be all renderless components. It's going to make zero design decisions about your app or your site. It's going to make zero markup decisions, none of that whatsoever. So you're in complete control of all HTML and CSS. And then you just have a lot of these neat little, I think, pieces of UI logic to pick from. Like maybe a good example is... um, uh, I have a component in here called Element Pop, and that is uh, that relies on the Popper JS library, and it just kind of wraps that up in a way that you can take any HTML element and pop it over another one. And Popper JS has all kinds of cool functionality, like when you scroll, like let's say you have a, a drop-down list popped underneath an input, it's kind of got a higher Z index, it's hovering over the screen, maybe a little drop shadow underneath it. As you scroll down, once that input runs out, once that dropdown runs out of space, um, it'll jump to the top of the input or maybe to the left or the right or wherever there continues to be space on the page where the user can still see it. So a cool little piece of JavaScript there might be tricky for somebody who is less experienced in JavaScript, I think, to work that into an app. But that component will just kind of let you uh, basically wrap any two HTML elements inside of it. uh, And then the first one will be Um, you know, like the reference element and the second one will get popped over it when you're ready for that to be shown. Um, But yeah, basically Baleata is going to be full of all kinds of those components that just wrap up little pieces of UI logic for you to use any place you want. Um, I'm also going to combine some of them. Like if you think back to that list of logic that I gave for the autocomplete, I actually have a separate Baleata component for pretty much each one of those pieces of logic that you need to go through when working on autocomplete. So I will have, I think, some renderless components that are composed. Like if you look into the code, it might be four, you know, three, four, five different renderless components. But when you use it, you'll just kind of type like autocomplete and you'll just get a scope slot where you can put anything in there and you'll have access to all kinds of cool data and functions inside of that scope. So yeah, that's what I'm working on with Baleata at the moment. I really love, like I said, I love Tailwind. I also love working with Netlify. So I think I'm going to include some interesting Tailwind utility and component classes, maybe like some stuff with the Netlify headers thing where you can set up like a content security policy custom so that you have a more secure site. Uh, Just all kinds of little tools like that that will be useful for building, you know, my own websites, my own web apps. Hopefully other people will find it useful as well. But no, my main goal with Baleada is that somebody who has more experience with me as me will come along and build their own renderless component library. We'll see like an explosion in that space where you can pick from maybe there's 10 different leaders in the space and you can see which one you like the API of or which one has the names that you remember the best. And you can kind of pick and choose from which renderless component library you like and then just build apps where you are mostly writing HTML and CSS the whole time, but it works magically like a full-on JavaScript heavy app. 
Yeah, and just to be clear, I think I didn't preface this, but Baliata is a Rendos component library that Alex himself wrote. So just so to give some context, yeah. definitely love all the Harry Potter references in here. Um, you know, anything about me, yeah. a bit of a Harry Potter nerd. So, <laughs> yeah, the Harry Potter API is like my go-to dummy data for for this entire documentation site. It's been fun. Nicely done. May I ask if Baliada documentation is actually built with Baliada? Yes. Yeah. So my kind of end goal, I think my 1.0 Baliada documentation release inside of each doc that explains a renderless component at the very top, you're going to see an example of how you might use that renderless component. So yeah, behind the scenes, it's a Nuxt project um, with a, you know, like a components slash renderless folder somewhere in there. Um, And then I just have, I'm basically building out the documentation and all my components at the same time, um, which is great for me because I can write a bunch of stuff, then switch to documentation when I get tired of writing JavaScript. Uh, and then when I come back to that a week later and I have no clue how to use it, I can go back to the docs that I wrote and remember how to use the thing that I built. So yeah, it's running Baliata under the hood for all those examples that you'll see um, at the top. Still working on a lot of those. That's going to be maybe like the final piece that I get in place is building out really nice little examples that kind of encapsulate what each one does. I have to say it looks really, really nice because I'm reading documentation right now and both examples and documentation look nice. Thank you. Yeah. And I, I really appreciate that because I listened to the documentation episode that you guys did a while back and I know that you have some taste in that area. So that's, that's a high compliment, I think, coming from you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, have you actually had a chance to use the view multi-select component? Sort of like, I wouldn't call it a component library, but it is like a you know, common component that people use. Have you used that at all? No, I haven't used that. It's been on my list to check that out and just kind of more broadly look out into the internet more because I know there are lots of little instances of people creating a renderless component or maybe something that's close to a renderless component. And I've been looking to a lot of that stuff for inspiration on like what are the common UI logic features that I should kind of be wrapping up in this library Um, or maybe who are some people that might like to collaborate on this project in the future, even take it over someday maybe. But yeah, Vue Multi-Select, I've seen that popping up all over the place. So that's definitely on my list to kind of dig into their source code and see how they're handling that kind of thing. Yeah, Damien from the core team manages that. And it's funny you mention it because I think he noticed something similar. And so when you have a chance to play around with that, he also allows you, like he provides a multi-select functionality. And, but he does provide a suggested like UI layer on top. And then if you want to pull out of that, then it's really easy. He exposes everything with scope slots and those kind of things as you're doing with renderless cool. components. So I think there's definitely some synergy there. So I think you're definitely like, you two have a similar vision as far as that goes. Because um, it's nice to give people a default, but then you know, to your point, if they want to get out of it, giving them a way to do so is really good. So just thought I'd mention that. Yeah, I think further in the future, we might even see libraries that are kind of hybrid traditional component and renderless component, and you'll be able to opt out of the traditional component side of things. So it'll maybe come with a design system, it'll come with accessibility features. Uh, And if you as an individual feel like you want to have more power over that, or you are confident in your expertise, maybe you can just opt out of the rendered part and just use the logic itself. Yeah, I think there's any number of ways that this kind of technique and technology could go. It'll be fun to watch it over the next year or two. Yeah, definitely. So I have to ask, what got you started with Vue? Because I know we mentioned like the Weekend Warrior thing. So there, as you know, yeah. there's like so many paths you could have taken. So how'd you, how'd you end up in our ecosystem? 
Yeah, I mean, as I mentioned, I write a lot of documentation for a living. So one major thing for me was like, if I have a limited amount of time to spend learning this stuff and implementing it and experimenting with it, I need absolute A plus first class documentation to make my learning experience as smooth and as quick as possible. And Vue is just hands down, I think the best out there in terms of documentation. And also just the API felt so simple and so easy to use, you know, just reading through that. I remember my experience reading through that first getting started doc, looking at stuff like V4, Von, and being like, oh my God, this is absolutely going to take what I do to the next level. And it's not going to take very long to learn it at all. So yeah, I would say just that, that first experience, I think totally sold me on Vue. And then getting deeper into it, reading about it. Um, it just has a great story, you know? It's like the, the open source underdog that's completely toppling everyone else. So it's always fun to be a part of that community as well. I think there's a lot of different pluses being involved with Vue, much beyond just the ease of use and the nice tooling that it has. I don't know if you're interested in talking at conferences, but Vue Toronto and Vue London have CFPs open. <laughs> Might want to consider submitting a talk on this. Yeah, I could, I could give that a shot. That'd be a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, yeah, actually, I wanted to suggest the same because the topic is really interesting and nobody is speaking about renderless components at all. It would be a really nice talk. Please consider applying to yeah. Vue London. I don't know. Yeah, I'll give it some thought. Um, I think that'd be a lot of fun. And yeah, I think the, the kind of undertones, like I think renderless component libraries tying into the, the bigger picture of diversity in tech makes it a really powerful topic as well. It just feels like, you know, I don't know, from the, from the stuff that I've looked into with diversity, I've never found any practical ways that I as an individual can kind of contribute to making that happen. But it feels like renderless components are maybe something that leans more in that way. It's like tactics for diversity rather than just like, large-scale strategies, long-term stuff, um, hiring plans and things like that, um, that very few people, I think, have control and power over. So this feels like kind of an interesting way to just make the technology itself better and that in and of itself invites a more diverse crowd into the industry. So yeah, I think that make for a pretty cool talk. I'll have to give some thought to that. Yeah, if you have questions, feel free to reach out. Um, Tali and I have a bit of experience with that. <laughs> I do have to ask though. So, um, you know, obviously it's great that you've had um, a good experience as far as like reading the docs and getting interview, but I'm actually curious, how did you stumble upon the renderless com like component pattern? Because it's not something that's like something that people would like jump to immediately. Um, so I'm curious how you found your way into that like rabbit hole. Yeah. So um, it's, I have thought about this because I, I, I remember looking back one day and being like, how the hell did I get here? Like, what, what am I reading right now? And more importantly, <laughs> why do I actually understand what I'm reading? Because six months ago, I would have had no clue what any of this meant. But yeah, no, thinking about it, it's kind of a, a long-ish journey. Um, I remember I saw somewhere, I think it was probably on Reddit, the videos of Steve Shoger about refactoring UI and kind of design tips and tricks for making user interfaces better. Uh, Steve Shoger, of course, works really closely with Adam Wathen on Tailwind CSS. So that's how okay, I found Adam Wathen. That's why that name yep. sounds familiar. <laughs> yep. Uh, and then so then I started following Adam Wathen because I was like, okay, Steve's work is pretty cool, but Adam's work seems like more in line with what I'm trying to accomplish as a developer. And then I finally learned about renderless components and dug deep when I took, uh, I got Adam Wathen's course on view component design, advanced view component design, I think it's called. 
and that just shows all the basics of renderless components um, and just sparked a lot of ideas for me of for me for of how where it could go from there. And so as soon as I finished up with that course, I just basically started Baleada. I've been working on it since then. That's pretty great. Actually, for those listening, so how did you come on to the name uh, Baleada? I have some lot, some justification in the docs that I think I really invented after I chose the name. It was kind of like, Baleada sounds like a cool name. And I'll just make up some reasons for why that should be the name of this component library. But no, what Baleada is, to explain what it is, what it actually is in the real world, it's a food. It's, a, it's like the most famous national food of Honduras, which is where I'm spending most of my time these, day, these days living. And it's just like a flour tortilla with refried beans spread on it. And then you can put scrambled eggs. And, you know, they have this mantequilla here, like the literal translation is butter. But it's kind of more like half sour cream, half butter, insanely delicious. Cheese, avocado, you can put chicken and stuff on it. But yeah, that's what a baleada is in real life. And I just love them. So it sounded like a cool name for a component good library. enough. That's a good enough reason. <laughs> yeah. That sounds pretty great. I'll have to add that to my list of food to eat. So I'm actually curious um, how you guys stumbled on the article that I wrote. It was on, what was that? On Vue.js.developers.com, which was a blog that started following. I can't remember when I started following them. But yeah, I was wondering how you guys found that and maybe how you guys also learned about renderless components yourselves, how you got introduced to that concept. I think I just saw it on Vue.js Developers Twitter. It was on February, I think. Yeah right about the time of UGS Amsterdam, and it was a really interesting article. Actually, I didn't work with renderless components a lot before it, so it was kind of first experience looking really deeply into renderless components. And then I also attended Ben's workshop. I was helping with running it, and Ben and Damian were also touching renderless components. I think it's, that's it for me. Yeah, so um, as far as me, yeah, for a long time, I didn't do any renderless components too. I was just, um, I was a big HTML, CSS geek when I was younger. So I never even thought in my mind to use view components that way to like take away the one thing I really liked. But no, so similar to you, actually, um, it, you know, it was sort of like talking with uh, Damien, but I, when I took Adam's course on advanced components, that was also one of the big exposures to ways of thinking about renderless components. He does a great job, really just breaking that down and giving you real scenarios where that would actually be applicable. So I think that was really my um, encounter with it. I don't know if Chuck has had a chance to work with it at all. I haven't. I'm, I, I play the noob card a lot on this show. I'm super busy. I'm actually working on other things, mostly related to making the podcast go. So I play with Vue, but I don't always have time to jump in on some of these topics. So so then, Ben, you might, um, when you have some time, you should poke around in the, there's a component in the Baleada library called State Sync, And that was inspired by the component that Adam used in class. And his was like, add, you know, using renderless component basically to add or remove items from oh. an array. Uh, and I thought, wouldn't that be cool if you could not only edit arrays, but also like any data type at all, like numbers, strings, objects, whatever. So I started working on that and then wrapped all of that into one single renderless component, which is, that was really fun. That was kind of like the big experiment that I think kicked off the entire project for me and so showed me, you know, how powerful the concept was and how flexible it was and sure. how nice it was to not ever have to think about like that kind of, you know, <laughs> asynchronous data saving again, that kind of logic that is prevalent pretty much in any app that you've ever used. Sure. Uh, 
Yeah, that makes sense. So my first encounter with your writing, though, was on Medium because you wrote Renderless or Bust. I think that was the other title. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Any particular reason you uh, title it like that way? Because I know that on the view dose, it was like view, Renderless View Components. No, no, that was the original title, too, on, on Vue.js Developers. Uh, and I think the Medium one, Anthony Gore, who runs Vue.js Developers, I think that's his standard operating procedure. He'll post it on his own site. And then a few weeks, you know, a few months, maybe later, he'll put it on Medium. But Got the it. title, yeah, I really have no recollection of how I came up with that title. <laughs> so um, fine. Renderless or bust. I think at the time I was like so worried. I was like, this is going to make no sense to non-English speakers because that <laughs> phrase or bust in English, it's a phrase that means like we're going to get there no matter what. Like we're going to do anything we can to get to that destination. So I was like, renderless or bust. Let's do it. <laughs> Let's get going. Just sounded like a nice pump up title. Yeah, totally makes sense. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. So speaking of documentation, um, have you worked with ViewPress at all? Um, no, I've had my eye on it. I uh-huh. think it's uh, something I love to play around with. When I started doing the Baleada docs, I was just thinking, I, w- I was split between Nuxt and ViewPress for a long time. Sure. Nuxt has been, I went with Nuxt because I wanted to have not only the component library, but also like some really nice Next configuration and stuff like that that I might be able to copy for web apps that are not just documentation sites. Sure. Um, so I went with that because I thought it would be more useful for my own projects in the long term. It has definitely been kind of a pain trying to like code in some of the stuff that I think is more built in with ViewPress, like mm-hmm. you know writing Markdown using View Components and Markdown. A, a lot of the general just like docs navigation stuff that you see on any documentation site, little buttons that will take you to the previous and the next article. Just all kinds of little features that once you start building them, you're like, wow, documentation sites are kind of more complex than I realized <laughs> when I'm reading them, when I'm using them. Yeah. But yeah, it's been a fun little learning experience too. And it's just good when you're, when you're involved in any big project like component libraries where you have like this massive to-do list. It is nice to have those little kind of mini challenges to just distract you from the bigger picture once in a while. And that's another reason why if anyone's doing this kind of stuff, I highly, highly recommend writing documentation while you're doing it. Uh, I think it just gives your brain a really nice break from the hard work that you're doing. And then when you get to the end of your project, you won't have to be like, oh God, now I have to write all the documentation because it'll be done. You already did it. You did it while you were writing your code. And then now you can go back and read it and use what you made. Yeah, that's a great point. I'm actually curious though, how did you get into like documentation like as a whole? Because that's like a... It's something that most people don't intentionally get into, I would say. Mm-hmm. 
that is one thing where I wouldn't say there's any, like there's any, there's no moment or there's no person that I started following on Twitter or there's no course that I took that really just kicked me off in that area. I really first formally got started with documentation when I joined the team at Kumu and it actually became part of my responsibility was to help with upkeep on the docs. But even before then, I think I was like submitting pull requests on the, on the Kumu docs and it's not an open source project. So that's kind of weird. Just the docs are open source. I was just using the tool, which is like a for-profit business. And I was like, I need this to be explained better to me the next time I come back and try and remember how to use this feature. <laughs> so I was submitting pull requests on the docs. That's a good tip maybe for anyone who's looking to get any kind of like support role is if you're good at writing docs, if you can practice that a little bit, make pull requests on any open docs of any company that you want to work for. And eventually they'll might reach out to you and give you a full-time support role. But yeah, no, I think writing has always just been maybe not my strongest suit, but it's definitely a skill that I have. Uh, and then just being able to like also dive into technology and kind of understand the ins and outs. I think I have more of a logic leaning brain than the average person who knows how much more, but maybe a little more. Uh, and that helps when you're writing documentation because you do have to, I think you guys talked about this in your docs episode and it rang true for me, um, that you pretty much have to understand how features work as well as the developer who created them. Uh, and if you don't understand them that well, then your docs are probably going to reflect that. And somebody at some point is going to come along and get stuck somewhere because there was like a really important piece that maybe you didn't quite grasp or you missed. So yeah, it's a kind of a cool hybrid skill is being able to write code, do big projects like this, and then also write clear documentation for them and be a good teacher and all those kinds of more... Uh, like less well-defined skills, maybe more difficult to teach skills. Yeah, and uh, on the topic of teaching, like, uh, do you actually have like a background as far as like education, or did you do any teaching growing up that sort of you feel like lends itself to the reason why you enjoy documentation? Because you know most people are like, oh, documentation, like I just want to write code kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it always attracted me. Even thinking back to like middle school and high school, I kind of just remember enjoying if people would come up to me and ask me a question and I was able to give them the right answer and give them an explanation that then they, you know, truly learned and they were able to remember a concept. So yeah, that's another thing that's kind of been like little steps along the way. The only real formal teaching I ever did when I was in, when I was at university, I went to Northeastern University in Boston. There's a teacher there, a professor there, Rebecca Riccio, who I worked with. I was a teaching assistant in her class really interesting class, totally not the topic of this podcast, but it's on strategic philanthropy. So if anyone is interested in that space, definitely look her up and, and some of the work she does. Uh, that was a super fun experience to be her teaching assistant. I even got to talk, to teach a class or two of my own while I was there. So yeah, other than that, no formal experience, but always been something that I enjoyed and love to do. That's great. Completely necessary, I think, for um, writing docs. It really helps so much to just like, have that, I don't know, that teaching gene or whatever it is that, that, we, that some people have. So, yeah. I just wanted to say I can totally relate to this. I don't have any teaching background as well, but I really enjoy writing documentation. So, like, I do the code work for day and then I write docs at night. But the weird thing is I'm writing the code and writing docs for two different projects, for GitLab and Vue. So it's even funnier. <laughs> nice. Yeah. And then in my full-time role, which is like split with, you know, real-time customer support on Slack and over email and that kind of thing, 
you know, from a business perspective and from like my own time management perspective, it's also awesome to have great docs because you write a really good doc after you get the same question from 50 different people. And then all of a sudden you don't have to write your response anymore. You just link them out to the docs and uh, you can kind of test if they keep coming back for more questions. Um, you know, one, you haven't done a great job writing the docs. You should probably go back and look at it. Two, you're not being that efficient with your time and with the business's resources and that kind of thing. Um, so if you write good docs, it really saves loads of time on the support side and just makes customers happier in general. So I think it's a cool, there's a cool business case yeah. for being good at docs too. Yes, I totally agree with this. That's why I spent some time on Vue Discord. It's Vueland, reading different questions from different users and trying to realize like, what do we miss in Vue documentation? What parts are really unclear to users? And I think it really helps mm-hmm. to find out and write new chapters to the docs. Yeah, that's that's great. And so I think an interesting part about your role, Alex, is that because you're interfacing with customers on the daily, right? Because similar to Natalia, like docs is something that you know kind of like do by night, and then there's like coding during the day. Do you have any like lessons learned as someone who's like been developing your skills as a do- like documentation through interacting with customers? You know, like lessons learned from yeah, just kind of seeing your work in and out. Yeah, maybe like two exclamation points per email is fine. Definitely no more than that. <laughs> but no, just, um, yeah, I don't know. Just it, it is also something that like comes a little bit more naturally to me, I think. But I, there's got to be some lessons that I can pull out. It's, it's cool for me too because I was a user of Kumu long before I started to work with them. So I remember I have like a strong empathy for how I felt in that moment when I was learning that concept and just totally didn't understand it. And I can, you know, when people come to me with the same question, I don't get the gut reaction. Some people might get the gut reaction in that situation, like, oh, I've answered this question so many times. It's the simplest thing. I'm really frustrated that people can't get this. But for me, it's totally the opposite. It's like, yeah, I remember when I, you know, made a pull request on the docs because I also had no clue how that feature worked. And so, you know, that helps definitely just to put yourself in people's shoes any on a more technical tactical side any tool you can find that allows you to have like canned responses that you can pull in um even just like a few sentences massive time saver for because no matter what business you work in there are going to be interactions that you have over and over again so my first job out of college is the role that you're talking about having and uh that was ultimately what got me into programming was writing a system that would give us canned responses so it's it is absolutely nice. <laughs> number one. It's like almost more important than actually being able to deliver an email to an inbox instead of a spam folder. It's like as long as I have my canned responses, I'm fine. I can do this role. It's it's so yeah. important. Uh, Chuck, when you're doing support, did you what, what at the time did your com- that company have like documentation things that you would contribute to as well, or is it more <laughs> no <laughs> no? <laughs> um, just just to give a little bit of background. So my I graduated from BYU which is here in Utah with a computer engineering degree. I'd been working in um, their IT department to pay my way through school. So I graduated. I got a job at a company called Mosey. They're still out there, M-O-Z-Y, Mosey.com. And um, interestingly enough, I think it says Mosey by Carbonite on there now. And Carbonite was like the big competitor that we were always... um, Yeah, anyway. (laughs) So... Uh, they they both wound up getting acquired by EMC Corporation, which was acquired by Dell. So you can kind of see anyway. Um, <laughs> so to make a to make a really really long story really short, I was the eleventh employee in the company, 
We were in this scrappy little office. We did have some pages that showed people how to use the product, but for the most part, we really didn't. And at the time we were answering, we just had email support. We were answering, answering emails using Mozilla Thunderbird. <laughs> and uh, with one person, you don't have to worry about who else is looking at the inbox. With two people, we kept having collisions. So those were the two big problems we solved was one, having the canned responses that didn't involve a cut and paste. And so we just built it in Rails because the company was using Rails at the time. And then um, the other thing was that uh, we put a mutex lock on the emails. So we sucked them into a database, put a mutex lock on it when somebody opened it so that the other person would pick up the next email after that one. And so it, it solved both those problems. So we didn't have to worry about who was answering the email and we didn't have to worry. You know, it's like, oh, you got a standard connection error. Try again. Here are a couple of tips. So, yeah. That's awesome. That was 12, 13 years ago. <laughs> a long time ago. <laughs> Sounds like a great system y'all built, though. Yeah, eventually it included a knowledge base and tracked people's time on the phone because they started offering phone support and stuff like that. So, yeah, it grew into quite the system. But yeah, that's how we started. Uh, Alex, I'd be curious your thoughts because um, uh, actually Chuck just mentioned the keyword, like knowledge base, right? Like the FAQs kind of thing is versus like your actual documentation site. Do you have like opinions as far as when to use one over the other or, you know? Yes. Um, yes, I definitely have an opinion and I have to think of what it is because I, <laughs> I have a really like a strong emotional reaction when you ask that question. Uh, <laughs> let me pull up the, let me pull up the Kumu docs and see what I have. What are you using for the docs now, now that we're into this? Cause yeah. this is something that I am fighting right now. I'm working on a system that will, it's what I call a podcast assembly line. And so essentially it automates the process of building out a podcast. And so you just bring in your own assembly line workers, your editors and mm -hmm. show notes folks and social media people. And then it gives them the tools to essentially assemble the car or in this case, assemble the podcast. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, I would love to have some kind of docs and yeah, walkthroughs and things like that for the users. Yeah. So we, the Kumu docs are on Gitbook. And I think that started when Gitbook was like a fully open source tool. I want to say they have, I want to say they're like hybrid now. They have some sort of open source offering and, and another paid offering somewhere. Uh, I can't remember how they're structured, but yeah, we have their, their open source thing. I would say in terms of workflow, it's probably similar to a lot of other, you know, probably like not that I, I, I already said that I haven't worked with ViewPress, but I imagine it's similar to ViewPress. Like really you're just kind of creating new pages, writing in Markdown. Uh, and then all the routing and stuff just works for you magically and it's all static generated and that kind of yep. thing. So yeah, that's, I think that's the way to go in terms of tooling because I think for, if you have developers who are working on documentation, they're absolutely going to, you know, they just like writing in Markdown and seeing monospace fonts instead of writing in sans serif fonts, I think is really what it comes down to. But they can, you know, also stuff like bringing in components if you're ever, I think there are some React op op options out there too, where you can bring in React components into your documentation. Uh, and then if you have a 100% non-technical user who's writing your documentation, probably rare since they have to have some technical understanding of the tool. But even, you know, for a person like that, it's not that difficult to pick up Markdown and master it in a day or so uh, and write that way. And then, so yeah, I, we've tried stuff like, um, you know, more formal tools like Help Scout, I think is a big one that I notice a lot of people use these days. 
I'll go on some SaaS apps, a support site, and I'll be like, that's definitely a help Scott template. And it works great. And, you know, they have all kinds of stuff for you out of the box. I never loved it just because I like writing in Markdown, looking at monospace fonts, that kind of thing. But yeah, so to jump back to that question of when do you write a guide and when do you write an FAQ, that's a really good one. And I think it's a really important one for people to be answering. Uh, Well, I mean, definitely, I guess one rule of thumb is if people are frequently asking the question, you should probably write a frequently asked question abbreviated to FAQ guide. And or sometimes I'll break it out when I think that, um, like, maybe if in my head, I think like 80% of readers will kind of get where I'm going and they'll be able to figure this out when they're looking at the UI, maybe 20% won't. So for that 20%, I'll split, you know, maybe two paragraphs of writing in the guide and I'll write an FAQ that's like another six or eight paragraphs of really detailed instructions with screenshots, like click here, then you'll see this, and then you can click this dropdown. I think that's kind of the stuff that I do in more FAQ style docs, like really detailed screenshots. I try to kind of avoid them and bring that stuff into the guides as much as possible. One big reason is because when your app changes or your site changes, uh, you have to go through and redo any screenshots that have now broken. So it's a little brittle in that sense. But no, FAQs, I think they are also useful if you're like in a rush and you think, I don't have time to write a full guide, but this information needs to be captured somewhere. Just write an FAQ for it and you can always maybe set a time to do like a monthly review of here are all our FAQs. Can we condense any of these? We've definitely done that at Kumu where, you know, I've looked at stuff and been like these three guides, these three FAQs actually could all just be condensed into one guide under this one umbrella topic. And that seems to also have worked pretty well for our users where they can, you know, go to one place and find tangential information that they might not otherwise have seen. So yeah, that's kind of how I handle it. It's, it's much more art than science for me. I have thought for a while that I should really like sit down and give it some thought and maybe write a blog post about kind of these more tactical questions around customer support. Uh, Cause it's so useful for developers in general too. like anyone that's running their own one or two person business uh, or working on a side project you're, or even just like working in a company, like you're going to have people in your company asking your questions. That's customer support. Your customer is your boss, your customer is your manager and you have to support them in whatever way you can. So I think, yeah, maybe I'll write something up with like some more tactics and details about how to handle that kind of stuff. It's awesome. Love the answer. Chuck, Natalia, do you have any other questions? I think maybe we're getting to the point where we might want to wrap up. Yeah, actually not a question. I'm just thinking about how to convince Alex to contribute to view documentation right now. <laughs> yes, that is a great point. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, no, I'll, I'll look around. Um, I noticed that you guys, I remember being a little confused by the scope slot stuff for a while and I noticed that you guys revamped that pretty recently. But no, I'll keep that in back of mind. Like As I'm working on uh, renderless component stuff, you need a pretty deep knowledge, I think, of how scope slots work and how slots work. And maybe like a overview understanding of render functions. Like the idea is that I write all the render functions and nobody else has to. But maybe it's good to understand behind the scenes. So yeah, I'll keep that in, in my mind. And as I'm reading, like I jump between the view docs. I'm pretty much, my tabs open are like my local server where I'm building the doc site and testing out new components. Uh, the next tab is pretty much always view docs. And then there's probably like 10 
MDN documentation tabs of like different web APIs that I forgot to close at one point or another. But yeah, that's my workflow. So I'll try and see if there's anything that jumps out to me and I'll go change it if I think it could actually, be written better. Actually, I think we lack the documentation for renderless components because I was reading about them from articles, from your article, mm -hmm. from I think something from CSS tricks as well. And we don't have a clear doc about renderless components. So maybe it's a good place to contribute. Yeah, no, that's a really good point because um, I've relied pretty heavily on the general component docs. And yeah, it's just kind of like the component docs mixed with the render function docs and the hybrid of that is a renderless component doc. Exactly. Full-on separate guide that probably deserves to have its own spot. So yeah, I'll think about writing something up like that. I've definitely I've learned a ton about kind of like more about how to design them and think about them and make them flexible. Uh, that kind of information that like, you know, the only way to get it is when you say, oh, this is a nice concept. I'm going to write a giant library of every possible renderless component I can think of. Uh, and you hit all the edge cases. Um, so yeah, maybe I can write something up like that with some technical how to, as well as like some tips on, you know, here's some design recommendations for your code. Yeah, it would be great. It's like waiting for your contribution. Cool. That made my day. Awesome. This episode is brought to you by TripleByte. Applying to programming jobs sucks. You have to put the right keywords in your resume. You spend hours and hours on the phone screens and take home projects. And that's assuming the company even responds to your application. Well, if you're a software engineer, TripleByte can help. They work with over 400 top tech companies from big names like Dropbox and Adobe to exciting startups. You do one brief online interview with them. And if you do well, you go straight to final interviews with the company on their platform. It's like the common app for software developers. TripleByte does not look at your resume or where you went to school. All they care about is if you can code. I've helped dozens of software developers with various credentials get jobs, and this looks like a terrific way for you to get in and get interviewed and get a job without a lot of the hassle and overhead. You can go check them out at triplebyte.com slash view. That's triplebyte.com, byte as in eight bits. As a special offer for listeners of this show, if you take a job through TripleByte, they'll offer you a $1,000 signing bonus. All right, then let's move on to picks. Natalia, do you want to go first? Yes, I want to start with the release that happened yesterday, in, and it's Vetter. The new version of Vetter is just released like 15 hours ago and has a lot of great features, so check it out. And for those who don't know what Vetter is, it's an extension for Visual Studio Code to work with view components. Awesome. What about you, Chuck? So I've got a couple of things that I've been working on lately that I just kind of want to get out there so people are aware of them. One of them is I've been working on a software as a service or SaaS. Anyway, a little bit of business lingo there for you. And basically what it is, is it's a podcast um, assembly line. So the idea is, is that you, you, know, you start your show and then we kind of set up all the tools and you can bring in your own assembly line workers, for lack of a better term come and work on it. So your editors, show notes folks, your social media people. And uh, yeah, everything just kind of works automatically from there. You just have to, you know, put the raw material or your audio file, your raw audio into the top of the funnel. And then it, it just kind of goes, okay, editors do your thing. Okay, software or show notes people do your thing. Okay, social media people do your thing. You know, reaches out to hosts and guests and all that stuff. So Anyway, that's something I'm working on. You can find it at podwrench.com. It will be available for beta very soon. It's still kind of coming together as we speak, but we're 
like three, four episodes ahead on this show. So by the time you uh, hear this, it should be out there in beta. So if you're looking at starting a podcast or if you have a podcast and you just, you're tired of all the production headaches and, and, and you know, wrangling people, then uh, come check out our assembly line. I'm also offering another offering along with it where you can actually just hire my team. So the team that produces this show could produce your show. So that's what I'm working on these days. But you can definitely check that out. I'm sure Ben and Natalia can mostly attest that they just mostly prepare and then show up and record and we handle the rest of it. So this is just going to make it more automatic and make the communication a lot easier. So that's the only difference they're going to see is that they're going to be better notified of what's coming up. And yeah, we're going to streamline the prep stuff and all that stuff. So anyway, if you have any feedback, I'd love to hear it. I'm starting a couple of new podcasts around podcasting, so you can check that out. And then we're also going to start a new show on open source sustainability. So go check out devchat.tv. I don't have a title or domain for that yet. But by the time this goes live, there is probably going to be something up on devchat.tv for it. So Exciting stuff. Looking forward to that stuff, man. Alex, what are your picks for this week? So I think if anyone is really interested in learning more about renderless components, or if you haven't seen, well, I'm sure we'll have my article in the in the show notes, but that's renderless or bust. You can Google that for vjsdevelopers.com. But on a more technical note, if people are interested in building their own component libraries, I definitely recommend looking at Adam Wathen, some of his writing on renderless components, or you know, if you can spring for the course, definitely do that. That course is advanced view component design. And then totally unrelated to coding and dev and whatever is uh, my pick for tourism in Honduras, which is where I'm living. And so if you want to be a tourist in Honduras, most people go to the beach. They go to the island called Roatan, R-O-A-T-A-N. And there's kind of two areas you can pick from. There's West Bay, which is like all-inclusive hotels. The cruise ships stop there. So if that's your scene, go there. If you're more into like staying in an Airbnb, doing some yoga on a dock, that kind of thing, then you're going to want to go to the West End. Uh, And it's actually super easy. It costs like a couple of dollars to get between the two of them. If you want to go people watch at the West Bay for a night and then go back to the safety of the West End, you can do that as well. So that's that's my Honduras tourism pick. That's awesome. Yeah, for this week, I think my picks are more fun. Um, I've been on a bit of a time travel kick. So if you haven't seen the movie Primer, it's a pretty old one, but a really interesting uh, concept. They take a time travel mechanic that's super interesting and they totally run with it. It's pretty great. That movie um, is killer. I, rem- I saw that one a few years ago. That is an awesome movie. Yeah, I was like trying... There's so much that goes on in that. You're like, wait, what happened? (laughs) Hold on. And if you like anime, um, I'm in the middle of watching Steins Gate, I believe is what it's called. So if you like time travel, um, those are my picks for this week. Um, All right. I think that's everything. So uh, yeah, Chuck, you want to close it out? Yeah. Thanks for coming, Alex. That was fun. Thank you. It was awesome. Where are you on social media just so people can follow you? I pretty much am only on Twitter and that's AlPalVipond. Okay. Well, thanks for coming. We'll wrap this up and we'll be back next week. And as Chris always says, enjoy the view. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit dot com to learn more.